Section 36 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 42. Louis Fourteenth, Richelieu and Literature, Part 3. The Parliament was not disposed to fulfil the formality of enregistration. The Cardinal had compressed it, stifled it, but he had never mastered it. The Academy was a new institution. It was regarded as his work. On that ground it inspired great distrust in the public as well as the magistrates. Quote, the people, to whom everything that came from this minister looked suspicious, knew not whether beneath these flowers there were not a serpent concealed, and were apprehensive that this establishment was, at the very least, a new prop to support its domination, that it was but a batch of folks in his pay, hired to maintain all that he did and to observe the actions and sentiments of others. It went about that he cut down scavenging expenses of Paris by eighty thousand livres in order to give them a pension of two thousand livres apiece. The vulgar were so frightened, without attempting to account for their terror, that a tradesman of Paris, who had taken a house that suited him admirably in Rue Saint-Diamant, where the academy then used to meet at M. Chaplain's, broke off his bargain on no other ground but that he did not want to be in a street where a, quote, Cademie of conspirators, or une Cademie de monopulaires, met every week, end quote. The wits, like Saint-Evremont in his comedy of the Academist, turned into ridicule the body which, as it was said, claimed to subject the language of the public to its decisions. Quote, so I, with hoary head, to school, must like a child go day by day, and learn my parts of speech, poor fool, when death is taking speech away, said Menard, who nevertheless was one of the forty. The letters patent for establishment of the French Academy had been sent to the Parliament in 1635. They were not registered until 1637 at the express instance of the Cardinal, who wrote to the Premier President to assure him that, quote, the foundation of the Academy was useful and necessary to the public, and the purpose of the Academicians was quite different from what it had been possible to make people believe hitherto, end quote. The decree of verification, when it at length appeared, bore traces of the jealous prejudices of the Parliament. Quote, they, the said assembly and academy, it ran, shall not be powered to take cognizance of anything but the ornamentation, embellishment, and augmentation of the French language, and of the books that shall be made by them, and by other persons who shall desire it and want it. The French Academy was founded. It was already commencing its dictionary in accordance with the suggestion enunciated by Chaplain at the second meeting. The cardinal was here carrying out that great moral idea of literature which he had expressed but lately in a letter to Balzac. Quote, the conceptions in your letters, said he, are forcible and as far removed from ordinary imaginations as they are in conformity with the common sense of those who have superior judgment. Truth has this advantage, that it forces those who have eyes and minds sufficiently clear to discern what it is, to represent it without disguise. Neither Balzac and his friends, nor the protection of Cardinal Richelieu, sufficed as yet to give lustre to the Academy. Great minds and great writers alone could make the glory of their society. The principle of the Association of Men of Letters was, however, established. Men of the world, friendly to literature, were already preparing to mingle with them. The literary, but late servitors of the great, had henceforth at their disposal a privilege envied and sought after by courtiers. Their independence grew by it, and their dignity gained by it. The French Academy became an institution, and took its place amongst the glories of France. 
it had this piece of good fortune, that Cardinal Richelieu died without being able to carry out the project he had conceived. He had intended to open on the site of the horse-market, near Porte Saint-Honoré and behind the Palais Cardinal, quote, a great place which he would have called Ducal in imitation of the Royal, which is at the other end of the city, says Pellisson. He had placed in the hands of M. de la Mesnardière a memorandum drawn up by himself for the plan of a college, quote, which he was meditating for all the noble sciences, and in which he designed to employ all that was most telling for the cause of literature in Europe. He had an idea of making the members of the Academy directors, and as it were arbiters of this great establishment, and aspired, with a feeling worthy of the immortality with which he was so much in love, to set up the French Academy there in the most distinguished position in the world, and to offer an honourable and pleasant repose to all persons of that class who had desired it by their labours. It was a noble and a liberal idea, worthy of the great mind which had conceived it. But it would have stifled the fertile germ of independence and liberty which he had unconsciously buried in the womb of the French Academy. Pensioned and barracked, the academicians would have remained men of letters, shut off from society and the world. The Academy grew up alone, favoured indeed, but never reduced to servitude. It alone has withstood the cruel shocks which have for so long a time agitated France. In a country where nothing lasts, it has lasted, with its traditions, its primitive statutes, its reminiscences, its respect for the past. It has preserved its courteous and modest dignity, its habits of polite neutrality, the suavity and equality of the relations between its members. It was said just now that Richelieu's work no longer existed save in history, and that revolutions have left him nothing but his glory. But that was a mistake. The French Academy is still standing, stronger and freer than at its birth, and it was founded by Richelieu, and has never forgotten him. Amongst the earliest members of the Academy, the Cardinal had placed his most habitual and most intimate literary servants, Bois-Robert, Desmarais, Colletet, all writers for the theatre, employed by Richelieu in his own dramatic attempts. Theatrical representations were the only pleasure the minister enjoyed, in accord with the public of his day. He had everywhere encouraged this taste, supporting with marked favour Hardy and the Théâtre Parisien. With his mind constantly exercised by the wants of the government, he soon sought in the theatre a means of acting upon the masses. He had already foreseen the power of the press. He had laid hands on Dr. Renaudot's Gazette de France. King Louis XIII often wrote articles in it. The manuscript exists in the National Library, with some corrections which appear to be Richelieu's. As for the theatre, the cardinal aspired to try his own hand at the work. His literary labours were nearly all political pieces. His tragedy of Miram, to which he attached so much value, and which he had represented at such great expense for the opening of his theatre in the Palais Cardinal, is nothing but one continual allusion, often bold even to insolence, to Buckingham's feelings towards Anne of Austria. The comedy, in heroic style, of Europe, which appeared in the name of Desmarais, after the cardinal's death, is a political allegory touching the condition of the world. Francion and Hibert contend together for the favours of Europe, not without, at the same time, paying court to the Princess Austrasia, or Lorraine. All the cardinal's foreign policy, his alliances with Protestants, are there described in verses which do not lack a certain force. Germanique, or the emperor, pleads the cause of Hibert with Europe. Quote, no longer can he brook to gaze on such as these, destroyers of the shrines, foes of the deities. By Francion evoked from out the frozen main, that he might cope with us and equal war maintain. Europe. 
Oh, call not by those names the indomitable race, who midst thy champions hold honourable place. Unlike to us, they own no shrine, no sacrifice, but still, unlike Ibert, they use no artifice. About the gods they speak their mind as seemeth best, whilst he, with pious air, still keepeth me oppressed. Through them I hold mine own, from harm and insult free. Their errors I deplore, their valour pleases me. What was that noble king, that puissant conqueror, who through thy regions like a mighty torrent tore? Who marched with giant strides along the path of fame, and in the hour of death left victory with his name? What are those gallant chiefs who from his ashes rose, whom still, methinks, his shade assists against their foes? What was that Saxton heart so full of noble rage, he whom thine own decrees drove from his heritage? Who, with his gallant few, full many a deed hath done, within thine own domains, and many a laurel one? Who, wasting not his strength in strife with granite walls, routs thee in open field, and, lo, the fortress falls? Who, taking just revenge for loss of all his own, compressed thy boundaries, and cut thy frontiers down? How many virtues in that prince's heart reside, who leads yon free-set people's armies in their pride? People who boldly spurned Ibert and all his laws, bravely shook off his yoke, and bravely left his cause. Francion, without such aid, thou sayest, would helpless be. What were Ibert without thy provinces and thee? Germanic. But I am of his blood, own self-same deities. Europe. All they are of my blood, gaze on the self-same skies, do all your hosts adore the deities we own. Nay, from your very midst come errors widely sown. Ibert, for chief support on erring men, relies, yet what himself may do, to others he denies. What, Francion favour error, this is idle prate, he who from irreligion thoroughly purged the state, who brought the worship back to altars in decay, who built the temples up that in their ashes lay, true son of them, who, spite of all thy father's feats, replaced my reverend priests upon their holy seats. Twixt Francian and Ibert this difference remains. One sets them in their seats, and one in iron chains. Already in Miram, Richelieu had celebrated the fall of Rochelle and of the Huguenot party, bringing upon the scene the king of Bithynia, who is taking arms. Quote, to tame a rebel slave, perched proudly on his rock washed by the ocean wave. As epigraph to Europe there were these lines, quote, all friends of France to this my work will friendly be, and all unfriends of her will say the author ill. Yet shall I be content, say, reader, what you will, the joy of some, the rage of others, pleases me. The enemies of France did not wait for the comedy, in heroic style, of Europe, in order to frequently say ill of Cardinal Richelieu. Occupied as he was in governing the affairs of France and of Europe, otherwise than in verse, the Cardinal chose out workfellows, there were five of them, to whom he gave his ideas and the plan of his peace. He entrusted to each the duty of writing an act, and, quote, by this means finished a comedy a month, says Pellisson. Thus was composed the comedy of the Tuileries and the Aveugle de Smyrne, which were printed in 1638. Richelieu had likewise taken part in the composition of the Visionnaire of Desmarais, and supported in a rather remarkable scene the rule of the three unities against its detractors. A new comedy, the Grande Pastorale, was in hand. Quote, when he was purposing to publish it, 
says the history of the academy, he desired M. Chaplin to look over it and make careful observations upon it. These observations were brought to him by M. de Boisrobert, and though they were written with much discretion and respect, they shocked and nettled him to such a degree, either by their number or by the consciousness they caused him of his faults, that without reading them through he tore them up. But on the following night, when he was in bed and all his household asleep, having thought over the anger he had shown, he did a thing incomparably more estimable than the best comedy in the world. That is to say, he listened to reason, for he gave orders to collect and glue together the pieces of that torn paper, and having read it from one end to the other, and given great thought to it, he sent and awakened M. de Boisrobert to tell him that he saw quite well that the gentlemen of the Academy were better informed about such matters than he, and that there must be nothing more said about that paper and print." The cardinal ended by permitting the liberties taken in literary matters by Chaplin and even Colletet. His courtiers were complimenting him about some success or other obtained by the king's arms, saying that nothing could withstand his eminence. Quote, "'You are mistaken,' he answered, laughing, "'and I find even in Paris persons who withstand me. There's Colletet, who, after having fought with me yesterday over a word, does not give in yet. Look at this long letter that he has just written me.'" He counted, at any rate, in the number of his five workfellows, one mind too independent to be subservient for long to the ideas and wishes of another, though it were Cardinal Richelieu and the Premier Minister. In conjunction with Colletet, Boisrobert, de l'Etoile, and Rotrou, Peter Corneille worked at his eminence's tragedies and comedies. He handled, according to his fancy, the act entrusted to him with so much freedom that the Cardinal was shocked, and said that he lacked, in his opinion, quote, the follower spirit. End quote, or l'esprit de suite. Corneille did not appeal from this judgment. He quietly took the road to Rouen, leaving henceforth to his four workfellows the glory of putting into form the ideas of the all-powerful minister. He worked alone for his own hand for the glory of France and of the human mind. Peter Corneille, born at Rouen on the 6th of June, 1606, in a family of lawyers, had been destined for the bar from his infancy. He was a briefless barrister, his father had purchased him two government posts, but his heart was otherwise set than, quote, on jurisprudence, end quote. In 1635, when he quietly renounced the honour of writing for the cardinal, Corneille had already had several comedies played. He himself said of the first, Melité, which he wrote at three-and-twenty, quote, It was my first attempt, and it has no pretense of being according to the rules, for I did not know then that there were any. I had for guide nothing but a little common sense, together with the models of the late Hardy, whose vein was rather fertile than polished. Quote, the comedies of Corneille had met with success, praised as he was by his competitors in the career of the theatre. He was as yet, in their eyes, but one of the supports of that literary glory which was common to them all. Tranquil in their possession of bad taste, they were far from foreseeing the revolution which was about to overthrow its sway in their own. End quote. Corneille et son temps by M. Guizot. Corneille made his first appearance in tragedy in 1633 with a Médée. Quote, Here are verses which proclaim Corneille, said Voltaire. Quote, After so many boons, to leave me can he bear? After so many sins, to leave me can he dare? End quote. They proclaimed tragedy. It had appeared at last to Corneille. Its features, roughly sketched, were nevertheless recognizable. He was already studying Spanish with an old friend of his family, and was working at the Cid when he brought out his Illusion Comique, a mediocre piece, Corneille's last sacrifice to the taste of his day. 
towards the end of the year 1636, the Cid was played for the first time at Paris. There was a burst of enthusiasm forthwith. Quote, I wish you were here, wrote the celebrated comedian Mondory to Balzac on the 18th of January, 1637, to enjoy amongst other pleasures that of the beautiful comedies that are being played, and especially a Cid who has charmed all Paris. So beautiful is he that he has smitten with love all the most virtuous ladies, whose passion has so many times blazed out in the public theatre. Seated in a body on the benches of the boxes have been seen those who are commonly seen only in gilded chamber and on the seat with the fleur-de-lis. So great has been the throng at our doors, and our place has turned out so small, that the corners of the theatre, which served at other times as niches for the page-boys, have been given as a favour to blue ribbons, and the scene has been embellished, ordinarily, with the crosses of knights of the order. Quote, it is difficult, says Pellisson, to imagine with what approbation this piece was received by court and people. End quote. It was impossible to tire of seeing it, nothing else was talked of in company everybody knew some portion by heart it was taught to children and in many parts of france it had passed into a proverb to say quote, beautiful as the cid criticism itself was silenced for a while carried along in the general twirl bewildered by its success the rivals of corneille appeared to join the throng of his admirers but they soon recovered their breath and their first sign of life was an effort of resistance to the torrent which threatened to carry them away with the exception of Rotrou, who was worthy to comprehend and enjoy Corneille, the revolt was unanimous. The malcontents and the envious had found in Richelieu an eager and powerful auxiliary. End of section 36